I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. I'm going to step out here where it's a little less cluttered, if you don't mind. It also brings me closer to you, since you didn't come closer to me. I want to tell you what a treat it is for me to be here today. And uh, it's a treat for two reasons. First of all, it was absolutely wonderful to only have to drive two minutes to church instead of 32 minutes to church. And secondly, a church in Roland Park is something I've actually been dreaming about for many years. I was actually part of a team that was envisioning where would we plant our first church in the city. Uh, because that was our intention. It wasn't to plant another church in the suburbs. It was to reach in uh, to the city. And uh, I remember it was about five years ago, I first approached Patrick and I said, uh, uh, whenever I'm recruiting, I, it's something I pray a lot about. And I went to Patrick and I said, I've been praying about who would be the right person to plant a new church in Roland Park. And I told him, I think God's calling you. He said, let me think about that. And he came back to me and he appreciated the interest, but he said, I don't think God's calling me. So we moved on and started looking at other people. And about a year later, Patrick came to me and he said, you know what, I've been praying about it. And I think you're right. And God's calling me. And uh, it's just so exciting to see the fruit of that uh, all these years later. And it's such a privilege for me uh, to be here uh, to speak in his absence. Uh, I remember uh, when I was 19, I was already studying for the ministry. I thought that's what God wanted me to do. And uh, I began working in churches. And the first job I got was working with children and young people for the summer in a church in Tampa, Florida. And uh, one of the things that we did was camps. And I remember my first junior camp where we took all these fourth through sixth graders away. And there was this one boy there and he taught me my very first preacher joke. He told me this joke about a pastor who loved to hunt rabbits. And uh, one Sunday afternoon, the sky was so blue like it is today and the weather so clear, he decided that God was calling him on a Sunday afternoon uh, to go hunt rabbit. So he sets out into the woods and uh, he's having such a glorious time just enjoying everything that's going on around him. He loses track of where he is. He finally realizes he's deeper in the wood than he's ever gone. He hears this rumbling behind him. He looks up, he turns around, and he sees this great big bear barreling down on him. He takes off running. And he's not at all sure that he can, he can get away, but he, but he runs as hard as he can. He thinks he's just about got it, but he trips over the root of a tree. He now knows there's no way he can escape, so he begins to pray. He says, dear Lord, please make this a Christian bear. He turns around and there's this great big old bear towering over him, his, his paws folded. Dear Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to receive. Amen. Uh, in this passage, uh, Paul's talking 
uh, a lot about prayer. You know, prayer is one of the most important of all Christian graces. Uh, And I think that's true because prayer is the thing that empowers everything that we do. Uh, It actually occurs at the end of a passage that's actually about the armor of God. And uh, Paul unfolds for us here a pretty impressive list of Christian armaments. And uh, one of the things I noticed as I studied this passage is that a lot of commentators uh, actually treat prayer as another implement of armor. But when you study the passage, you see that the analogy stops at this point, and when you look at the grammar, what it indicates is that this exhortation to prayer isn't simply another piece of armor, but it is the means by which we are to employ all of the other armaments. In other words, we're to take up the helmet of salvation or put on the breastplate of righteousness or use the sword of the Spirit and and all of those other things. We're to use it. We're to implement it. We're to employ them with prayer. I'd like to make six quick observations about prayer this morning. And for those of you who like to take notes, I'm actually going to use the word prayer as an acrostic. And uh, I actually never do this. This is the only time I've ever done it. So this is unique for me. Let's see if I can actually remember how to spell the word prayer between now and the end. Uh, For those of you who know me, no, that's a real venture of faith in and of itself. Uh, When you think of that first letter P, uh, what I'd like you to remember is the word power. Prayer is powerful. And it's powerful because it plugs us into the movement of God's kingdom in this world. In Luke, Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You see, prayer is one of the primary means that God uses to conform our will to his will. And at the same time, it is one of those means that God uses to accomplish His purposes, His will in the world, in the church, and in our own individual lives. There was a famous Christian pastor named George Mueller. He lived in the 19th century. George Mueller was a German who immigrated to England, and there in London, uh, he opened up an orphanage uh, to, to minister to children who had either been abandoned or had been orphaned. And uh, one of the things that uh, he is noted for is not simply his charitable work. He was actually a man who was known for his prayer life. When you read his autobiography, it's just full of these unbelievable stories of how he would pray for very specific things and very specific needs, and God would provide exactly what he needed when he needed it. An example would be, uh, they were out of food in the orphanage. He knew that the next morning, when they awoke, there was nothing to feed the children. So he arose early in the morning and he began to pray. And he prayed specifically for this need. Uh, 
And as he prayed, uh, the bread wagon from the local bakery broke down on its way to make its deliveries in the city. And uh, there was no way to repair it. So the man was outside the orphanage. He went and he knocked on the door. And, he, and, he, and Mueller answered. And he said, my, my, my bread wagon's broken down. I can't get my bread to market. Can you use it? When you read Mueller's biography, it's, it's full of these stories of one amazing provision after another. As God worked and moved, as Mueller prayed, people would press Mueller all the time to tell him the secret, you know. Tell us, how is it that you pray? Why, why do you get the results that you get? And Mueller would write very reluctant about it. And in fact, when you read his biography, you sort of have to piece little clues together. But this is one of the things he said. He said this, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the knowledge of what God's will is. You see, prayer isn't principally about me and my desires and my needs. It's about God and His purposes and His will and His desires. And when we get on board with that, we find that prayer is very powerful. When you think about the letter R, I'd like you to remember the word reality. Prayer is important because... It enables us to see all of reality and not just part of it. Prayer takes us into a realm that no human eye can see. This is actually Paul's point right here in Ephesians 6 in the larger context. If we go back to the the sentences that, that introduce this long discourse on armor that leads us to his exhortation to pray, we find in verse 12 that he tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of heaven of evil and heavenly realms. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's pulling back the curtain of space and time. And he's giving us a glimpse of what is unfolding behind the circumstances of our own daily lives. We have a very practical example of this in the life of Elijah as he's residing in Dothan in 2 Kings chapter 6. The situation is this. The king of Amram is trying to invade Israel. And at every turn, he is thwarted. No matter what his strategy, no matter what secret maneuver he takes, he's always foiled because the king of Israel has the perfect counter move. He assembles his commanders together and he says, what's going on here? Why can't we beat this guy? And they tell him, well, there's this prophet in Israel. His name is Elisha. And he keeps tipping the king of Amran off as to what our plans are. So, 
the king decides that the solution to this is to send his army to the city of Dothan to surround it and to take Elisha captive and to kill him. And that's exactly what he does. And in 2 Kings 6, Elisha's servant gets up and he goes out to pick up the Dothan daily. And when he gets outside, what does he see but the army of the king of Amram encircling Dothan. (coughs) And he rushes back in and he says, Oh my Lord, what are we going to do? And Elisha's response is intriguing. He says this, Don't be afraid. Those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. Now, think about the setting for a moment. Can't you just see the wheels turning in the servant's mind? (laughs) You haven't been outside yet. (laughs) You haven't seen what I've seen. Then Elisha prays the most fascinating prayer. He says, O Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And when the servant goes back outside with Elisha, You know what he sees? In the hillside surrounding Dothan, right behind the army of Amram, he sees the heavenly hosts, the fiery chariots of heaven itself, encircling the enemy's forces. You see, the servant's problem wasn't that he saw too much. It was that he saw too little. You see, prayer is important because it shifts our focus from our circumstances to the larger purposes and promises of God Himself. It gives us a glimpse into what He's doing in our world behind the circumstances that we immediately see. When you think of the letter A... I'd like you to think of the word access. Prayer is important because it brings us into the intimate presence of the King of Heaven Himself. I find that this is really hard uh, for a lot of us to get our heads and hearts around. I think it's hard for us to get our heads and hearts around the intimate access that we have into the presence of God for at least two reasons. And and one of those is, is that we, we are reluctant to pray, oftentimes, because we just don't feel worthy. Our lives are filled with guilt and shame. And we just don't feel we can come with our heart's desires into His presence. This is when we need to remember that it's not our worthiness that gives us access. It's the intercession of Christ in our behalf. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, Paul paints this picture, excuse me, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. The writer of Hebrews 
paints this picture and he says, he says, he talks about this heavenly tabernacle. He says there's a heavenly tabernacle that is greater and more perfect than the earthly tabernacle. And what do we see in this heavenly tabernacle that Paul talks about? What we find is that it looks just like the heavenly tabernacle, an earthly one, and it has a holy of holies. But when you go into the holy of holies in the heavenly tabernacle, what do you see? You see Jesus Himself standing before the altar of God. And what is He doing there? You know what He's doing there? He's sprinkling the altar with His own blood. And then the writer says this, remember, Jesus always lives to intercede for us with His own blood. You see, you and I can come boldly and confidently into the presence of God with the desires of our heart, with our needs and our struggles and our anxieties because, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is there covering us with His own blood and interceding for us. What a joy. There's a second reason I think we're reluctant to pray, and uh, sometimes I I think we just feel impotent when we pray. Uh, We struggle to find the right words. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says this, in the same way the Spirit Himself helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with words that even our deepest groans cannot express. You see, not only do we have the intercession of the Son, we also have the intercession of the Spirit. We have a a great picture of this in Revelation. John provides us uh, with a symbolic image of this process unfolding in Revelation 8. The passage begins with a picture of the angels in heaven and then uh, a standing in the presence of God in heaven. And no sooner do we catch that glimpse than the scene shifts very rapidly and it shifts to earth And it focuses on something that's remarkably important that's going on. And you know what that is? The saints are praying. And then as soon as we figure that out, the scene shifts quickly again back to heaven. And what do we see there but the prayers of the saints being symbolically collected in this bowl and sprinkled with perfume and being made acceptable to God. You see, our prayer is powerful (coughs) because we have the intercession of the Son and the Spirit who takes our words and brings them to an expression in a way that is richer and fuller than even the deepest groans of the human heart. When you think of the letter Y, I'd like you to think of the word yieldedness. Prayer is effective because it undermines the self-sufficient bent of the human heart. You see, prayer, uh, the the very act of praying, what's happening in that act? Well, we actually have to come before God. When we ask for anything, what are we doing? We're actually acknowledging that we need God to do something in our lives that only He can do. Uh, In James 5, 
he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Think about that for a minute. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God and he will give it to him without finding fault. Now, how do, you, how do you get wisdom? How do you get on board with a promise like that? You know what you have to do first? You actually have to acknowledge that you lack wisdom. And when you do, God will provide it without finding fault. Is there someone you need to forgive? Well, what do you need to do? You need to go to God and you need to begin by admitting all the ways that you're powerless to let go of your grudge. Do you need to love? Is there somebody in your life that you're struggling to move towards? What you need to do is you need to go to the Father and you need to admit to Him all of the ways that you're absolutely powerless to move towards that other person. Do you need to do something that's impossible? Then you need to own up to all of the ways that you keep trying to do that thing in your own strength that are getting in the way. Do you need more faith? You need to begin by owning up to all of the ways that fear is paralyzing in that area of your life. You see, yieldedness, acknowledging our weakness, our powerlessness, is the key to seeing God move as we come to Him with our petitions. When you think of the letter E, I'd like you to remember the word every. Every. Uh, Prayer is powerful when we use every opportunity and every means at our disposal to pray. In verse 16, Paul says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Uh, John Bunyan, in his classic Pilgrim's Progress, called this the power of all prayer. There's this very interesting scene in his book where, he come, where Pilgrim comes to a very desolate and dark stretch of road where the black clouds cover the noonday sun with the darkness of midnight. On each side of the path, uh, there are great caverns and pits, and poor Pilgrim trembles as he leaves the safety and protection of the hills to travel this very forbidding stretch of road. And he's not even halfway across when suddenly there leaps onto the path uh, Apollyon, his black fangs bared, Satan incarnate. (coughs) With a roar, he leaps upon poor pilgrim. They roll in the road, locked in a mortal struggle. Not only life and death But heaven and hell are at stake for Pilgrim. And he almost despairs of life itself when his sword, the sword of the Spirit, is knocked from his hand. But with one final valiant effort, he he reaches out and grasps his sword. And with what Bunyan calls the power of all prayer, 
He deals his adversary a mighty blow that sends him scurrying away with a terrible wound. What is the power of all prayer? Well, the Bible tells us there's many kinds of prayer. There are prayers of praise, prayers of thanksgiving. There are prayers of petition, prayers of supplication, prayers of confession, prayers of repentance. There's public prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer, group prayer, and all of the rest. What Paul is saying is that powerful prayers avail themselves of every type of prayer at their disposal. When you think of the second R in the word prayer, I'd like you to remember the word resources. Resources. Prayer is strategic because it resources the movement of God in the world, in our church, and in our lives. Uh, I want to, it's interesting to me in verses 19 and 20 that Paul, think about this, Paul the Apostle, the one who had this amazing Damascus Road conversion, the one who seems to stare down Roman authorities, who seems to say what no one else in the room is ever willing to say. He actually asks the Ephesians to pray for him, that he might be given words to make known the mystery of the gospel fearlessly. This man who seems on the outside to know no fear, confesses inwardly to be very fearful and and pleads with the Ephesians to pray with him. If Paul needed his followers to pray for him, how much more do you and I need others to be praying for us? Do you pray persistently for those whom God has called to lead you? Let me make it really personal. Do you pray for Patrick? Do you pray for his ministry, his heart, his soul, his life, his ministry, his work? It's vitally important because prayer empowers ministry. I read a story one time about a minister from Boston who, while speaking to a friend one day, confessed, I feel that I've lost the power that I once had in my preaching. His friend asked, why do you think that's the case? He said, well, there were three women in my church three older women who prayed for me every day. And he said, over the last year, one by one, they've all died and gone home to be with the Lord. I've often wondered how many ministries are sustained not by the brilliance of the leader's gifts, but by the prayers of God's people, sometimes in very obscure places. One of the most practical services that you can render Patrick or anybody else in your church who labors in ministry, teaching children or teaching young people, 
is to pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit will be their teacher, that He will lead them, instruct them, protect them, and empower them to accomplish God's purposes in your midst. Wilbur Chapman was a famous evangelist in the 19th century. And uh, in 1895, at a young age, he became a pastor of a large church in Philadelphia. After his first sermon, an old man came to him uh, who was a member of the congregation and said, "Uh, you're too young to be the pastor of this great church. He said, I'm afraid you're going to fail. He said, but uh, don't worry. He said, uh, you preach the gospel, and so I'm going to do everything I can to help you. At at first blush, Chapman thought this man was an old crank. But the man continued, and he said, I'm going to pray every week that the Holy Spirit will empower you your preaching of the gospel. He said, not only that, but two other old guys in this church have promised to meet with me every Sunday morning before the service and pray with me. Well, those three soon became 10. The 10 soon became 20. The 20 soon became 50. The 50 soon became 100. And the 100 eventually became 218 men and women who gathered every Sunday morning before the service to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower Dr. Chapman's preaching. Dr. Chapman said, under those conditions, anyone could preach. It was easy. He said it was a veritable joy. And do you know that during the course of his three-year ministry in that church, 1,100 new members were received by profession of faith. And 600 of them were men. Dr. Chapman later wrote in his biography, it was the fruit of the Spirit in answer to the prayers of those men. I don't see how the average pastor under average conditions preaches at all. Old hymn writer William Cowper penned these words. Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees.